Well, welcome back. Um, tonight, as we turn the page into Zechariah chapter 9, uh, we're actually turning to a new section of the book of Zechariah. Many books in the Bible have this sort of bifid structure where there's roughly half of the book does a certain thing and the other half of the book does something else. Uh, this is very common, for example, in Paul's letters where the first half of his letters tend to be very doctrinally oriented and the second half of his letters tend to be application. Uh, with Zechariah, it works a little bit differently. Yeah, the first half of Zechariah, more or less, um, does deal with the grand swope, uh, scope of um, redemptive history. It goes from Abraham all the way up to Christ's second coming, but it's always intertwining that with the people of God rebuilding the temple there in Jerusalem. Uh, that latter part uh, fades away now for really the rest of the book. And what we have tonight is a looking forward to the establishment of the Davidic kingdom, the coming of Christ, and what that will mean, right? We're moving to very explicit messianic prophecies as we look at tonight's passage. Um, we're used to this. This is actually perhaps the most famous portion of Zechariah, uh, because the middle section of this passage from Zechariah 9 is quoted extensively in the Gospels, uh, in relation to the last week of our Lord's earthly life. And so we're very familiar with these words, but I'd like to look at them tonight, not from the standpoint of the Jews in the first century, uh, or even to some degree from us in the 21st century, but to try to see them through the eyes of the people in Zechariah's day, who aren't looking back on them, but who are looking forward to these promises that God is giving them uh, in the midst of their own weakness, and being surrounded by so many enemies as they were. But before we examine this portion of God's word, uh, let's go before the throne of grace and ask that the Lord would bless his word with his spirit. Let us pray. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us your word and that you have not given it to us in puzzles and clouds, but in the main, that you've given us your word with clarity, that we can see the beauty of what you are doing, what you have done for us, that we can see that you control all of history, so clearly prophesying hundreds of years in advance the sending of your own son. We ask that through your spirit, we would come to understand this portion of your word better, and that uh, you would use it to stir us up that we would have greater confidence in you, and out of that confidence and faith, that you would send us out to glorify you uh, throughout our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, chapter 9 actually divides pretty neatly and pretty obviously into three sections. The first section deals with reestablishing the boundaries of the promised land. Um, that's actually a really striking thing. It's easy for us to see because we look at it through the lens of 2,400 years later. But actually in their day, we have to remember they were just a tiny remnant of people who would return to the vicinity of Jerusalem and their enemies all outnumber them all around. The second section directly speaks to the coming of the king to Zion, that is the coming of Jesus, but clearly coming as the king, that is the Messiah. The third section points to the goodness of God 
in pouring out his blessings upon his people in the messianic kingdom and using his people to advance that kingdom, right? So those are the three main sections we're going to look at. And I want to encourage you to remember that these words are initially coming to a small, or really a tiny remnant of people in Jerusalem and in the surrounding area. And the Lord is saying, um, I'm on the move. I'm going to do big things. I'm going to restore the boundaries of the kingdom that I have given to the people of God, the Davidic kingdom, and the whole of the promised land. In fact, it's going to extend far beyond that. When the Messiah comes, he will rule from sea to sea, from the river, even to the ends of the earth. Would someone read verses 1 through 8 for us tonight? That's the first section. Verses 1 through 8. I can do that. Thank you, Jason. The burden of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach, and Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel, and on Hamath also, which borders on it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold, the Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she shall be devoured by fire. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because of its hopes, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashad, and I will cut down the pride of Philistia. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah, and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Thank you, Jason. Um, back in chapter one, uh, we see these angelic messengers and they, they come and they say they've been patrolling the whole earth and the earth is at rest. And on the one hand, that, that's kind of an attractive picture, but there's not uh, any major war going on. But it's not entirely attractive because all these people are at rest while they're in opposition to God and to his kingdom. Tonight, Zechariah announces the news that God is, is, as it were, breaking camp, that God is going to reconquer the whole of the promised land for his people, and um, he's going to establish his messianic kingdom. Now, John McCain makes, I think, a really helpful observation uh, about the enemies that get named here. These are traditional enemies of the people of God uh, that are being named. But John McKay draws our attention to the enemies that are not named. He writes, there is no mention of such traditional enemies as the, to the Jews as Edom or Moab or Ammon. Their territories lay to the east of the Dead Sea and were not considered to be part of the land of promise. Similarly, Egypt and Mesopotamia, two other traditional and really significant enemies of Israel, are also not mentioned. The focus here is on the promised land and the enemies of Israel that were either harassing them inside the promised land 
or right on the edges of it, right? That, that's the main point. Um, the passage begins uh, by speaking of an oracle or in the version that Jason was reading, uh, a burden. Was that the NIV, Jason? Yeah. It was, NIV. ESV. It was an ESV. Oh, ESV. Yeah. Um, I, I was using the ESV too, and my version says oracle. Um, an oracle is a message, right? That's really what it stands for. It's a prophetic message, but the idea can be that of a heavy message. That's why you sometimes get this idea of a burden, a weighty message, and weighty in the sense that it's pressing on the prophet, so the prophet has to speak. That this is something he just has to get off his chest. Uh, you can think of um, Jeremiah talking about God's word being like a fire in his bones. Uh, that's sort of the idea here with this oracle that has to come out. Although in this case, it's an oracle of good news for Israel, but bad news for Israel's enemies. Zechariah begins with Hadrach, which we don't actually hear a great deal of in the Bible. But Hadrach's up um, close to Damascus. It's the most northern territory that's mentioned in this passage. And what you actually have here is a motion from the north along the seacoast down to the south. Um, and we'll see why that's significant in just a moment. But it, it does mark out the parameters, as it were, of the promised land. Um, Damascus, as you know, is, is a much more well-known um, city in the Bible. It's the main city in Syria. It's the capital, as it were. Uh, it's the central uh, city for them. And um, in many times, it was in, in opposition uh, to the people of God. Uh, the Lord starts out by saying, he's going to bring his word, right, an oracle, against those lands, against the land of Hadrach. But then he says Damascus will be its resting place. So God, in some way, is going to conquer these people. But he also says something about rest. And that's actually pretty hard to figure out. Does anyone have any idea what its stands for, which says its resting place? And you could just guess here, because it's really pretty hard to figure out. But uh, perhaps you've thought it through. I'm thinking the word of God. Yeah. The oracle resting on Damascus. Peter, I, I think that's the way the ESV translators, and actually many of the English translators take it. They're saying the word of God is there. The difficulty with that is it's hard to see how to put God being against Hadrach, against Damascus, coming to conquer them, and that word rests there. Because um, the word rest does have uh, a connotation of serenity at attached to it, uh, the way this word is used uh, in the Bible. So it's possible. I'm not saying that's wrong. Uh, but I want to give you another alternative that I think makes a little bit better sense of the passage. In Hebrew, there's no difference between saying um, uh, he rests or his rest and its rest, right? It could be either because they're both masculine. Uh, the way it's working here. And I think that actually makes better sense of it is to talk about um, his resting place, not its resting place. In the Bible, this is very common for this, this particular term, this word to be used for God coming to his resting place, particularly with the idea of the ark of the Lord being lifted up, uh, you know, and, and, and God's enemies being scattered, and then talking about the Lord coming to his resting place when the ark is settled down. And so we talk about Jerusalem as the resting place of the Lord, or even inside the temple where the ark is as the resting place of the Lord. 
And the idea here is not the Lord had a really difficult week and he goes inside the Holy of Holies to kind of relax and unwind a bit. That's not what rest means here. It's the idea of sitting down enthroned with serenity because God is completely in charge, right? That, that's the, the basic idea. And if that's correct, um, what the author is getting at here, what Zechariah is getting at is Damascus, whom God is against, is also a place where God is setting up his throne. See, he's not simply the Lord of Israel. He's the Lord of all the earth. Now, I wouldn't tell you that is the right interpretation of this. There are scholars that hold both views. Uh, but to me, that makes better sense than trying to say the word rests there. Uh, if you had to say it's, I, I agree with Peter. That's that's the, the right interpretation. Uh, it's, the, it's referring back to the word. But I think it's better to say um, it's the Lord's resting place. Thoughts about that or pushing back on that, that maybe I'm missing something. It's interesting how Damascus does have a role in the New Testament. You know, it's probably not looking forward to that. But, you know, if we go to Acts and Damascus actually is a place where God's word goes out power. Yeah, that's true. Although I don't know, I, I, if, if my interpretation, well, it's not actually my interpretation, the one I'm agreeing with um, from people that have seen this long before I did, if this is correct, though, it's not distinctly Damascus, the way we would say distinctly Jerusalem. It, it, the point here actually could apply to everywhere else. It's, it's part of this bigger picture of wanting to show that the Lord is, on the one hand, reconquering the promised land. But actually, he's in charge of everything, right? So everywhere he goes, he is enthroned as king. Um, that would be more the idea. And it's just Damascus is the first place to, to bring that up. Um, Hamath, uh, the, other, the next city that's mentioned, is also a Syrian, a Syrian uh, city. It also isn't that commonly mentioned in the Bible, uh, yet during the um, United Monarchy, right, that's, um, you know, Saul, David, and Solomon, we find that these three cities are all causing trouble for Israel. So in that sense, it's not surprising that they would be mentioned as God is talking about restoring the Davidic monarchy. Um, the Lord then moves north from, um, from north to south down the coast. Uh, he starts with the Phoenician cities of Tyre and Sidon. Now, these are extremely wealthy centers of trade. They're also well fortified. Um, Tyre had a wall built around it that was nine, um, I think nine meters wide. I was going to say nine feet. It's one or the other. I remember nine. But they had this really big wall. And um, they were very fabulously wealthy because of all the trading that they did. And for centuries, anyone who tried to attack them, they just, they just couldn't get at them. Turns out that later on, Alexander the Great, the one that actually conquers Tyre, he puts a huge army to work because Tyre is this, this like island-like city, and he actually fills in the water up to the walls in order to conquer them. It's a massive engineering work um, that lays waste to them. And the Lord describes Tyre and Sidon as very wise. In this context, remember, wisdom in the Bible is often very practical. Very wise probably refers to their business dealings and their political shrewdness. They had a lot of really capable business people 
Uh, and God says, even though that's true, even though you're shrewd in politics, even though you're filled with very capable business people, I am going to bring you low, right? I am not going to let you stand in your own power. The Lord says, though they are very wise, he is going to strip her of her possessions, strike down her power, and judge her with fire. And it does turn out that after Alexander the Great conquers Tyre, it has never been rebuilt, even down to the present day, right? It's, it's a really kind of a dramatic monument to the fact that when this comes true, um, the city really does lie in ruins. I think there's a practical application for us as Americans. It's really easy for us as Americans, and we're a lot bigger, of course, than Tyre, but it's easy for us to go, hey, we got the biggest economy in the world. Hey, we got the greatest military in the world. You know, we are completely secure. And Tyre should remind us we're not secure against God's judgment, right? Compared to God, we are not a superpower. And um, that might be wise for us to remember that um, we should not trust in princes, including our own. In verses five and six, we're told of the Lord's judgment against the Philistines, right? Now he's coming down the coast of uh, along the Mediterranean. That's where the Philistines primarily were. That's where their five cities, now the four cities are. So picking up in verse five, the Lord says, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. The king shall perish from Gaza. Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. They may have noticed that um, there are five cities in Philistia that are famous to us. And uh, Zechariah only mentions four of them. But the reason for that is, is in 711 BC, or at least in my judgment, in 711 BC, the Assyrians destroy Gath, right? That's where Goliath is from, Goliath of Gath. And so there's no point in mentioning it now during this time of the Persian Empire. Um, these four cities are still in existence. So I think that's why he mentions four cities and not all five of them. The question, though, is how would this prophecy be, be fulfilled? And it turns out that Josephus, the, the Jewish historian of, of the first century, he writes like 20 volumes of the Jewish antiquities. And he describes Alexander's conquest of what we call the promised land in great detail. And it matches up really, really well with the way Zechariah makes his prophecy. So many scholars think that's what this is about. The challenge for us is this. I want to see if you can get this challenge. The challenge for us is, did Josephus simply describe the history of Alexander's conquest of the promised land? And because God is fulfilling his prophecy in Jeremiah in detail, those two things match up. That's option one. But regrettably, to make things a little muddier, there is a second option, which is, Josephus has a copy of Zechariah in hand, and he's writing his history of Alexander's conquest of the promised land through the lens of biblical prophecy. Do you see the challenge we have both for historians and Bible scholars, which really are trying to do the same thing here? Because it's, it's not easy to, to sort those two things out. Um, we don't have a lot of very detailed sources. We do have a lot of sources about Alexander's conquest. But Josephus is the one that takes particular interest 
in the details of him conquering these areas uh, in the promised land. Uh, to, to my judgment, I think leaning in the first direction makes the most sense. That is, while undoubtedly um, Josephus was very familiar with Zechariah, that really the events simply match up because that's the way God had prophesied them. And, and that it is specifically referring to Alexander the Great. Uh, some people doubt that, and they just want to say, this is just general stuff. But if you look at verse five with me, I think this kind of, in my thinking, helps nail it down. In verse five, we're told, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. What's the it that they're seeing and being afraid? Well, it's the destruction of Tyre and Sidon, right? That's the direction that the conquest is coming. And if we look at all the other conquests and struggles that go on um, for the next couple hundred years in uh, this part of the world, there's nothing else that can match up like this, right? Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. Gaza too and shall rise in anguish. Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid. I think the issue is um, they knew how wealthy and powerful Tyre and Sidon were, how well they were protected with their fortifications. And when Alexander the Great conquers them, they look at themselves and go, we're doomed. Right. So to me, that matches up. What do you guys think? I don't, I don't know if there's any way to sort it out further than that, but I, I think it just makes the most sense to say the prophecy of Zechariah is largely, at least, fulfilled through the conquest of Alexander. Thoughts on that? Let me add something. I think in spite of that, there's something else that's worth seeing. Uh, John McKay, a very good commentator on Zechariah, uh, I think makes this important point. I'm not quoting him here, I'm summarizing him. This prophecy is not about Alexander the Great. And now I'm quoting. In fact, there is no mention of Alexander or any human agency at all. The emphasis in this passage is on the fact that it is the Lord who is at work. He is the one who determines the outcome of the events of history. And this culminates in the Messiah. So Zechariah's prophecy is about the Lord doing these things. And it turns out that he happened to use Alexander as his instrument to do it. But Alexander isn't even mentioned. Like we, we can talk about little horns and so on in Daniel. There's not even a mention of that here because the emphasis falls squarely. It's God who's doing it for his people. Uh, then in verse seven, we see an important shift. Instead of judgment, right? So we're doing all this conquering, um, uh, you know, through Damascus and Tyre and Sidon and down to the Philistines. We get to verse seven, instead of conquering in judgment, the Lord speaks of a Gentile remnant. He says, I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from beneath its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. Um, that issue of eating blood, by the way, taking blood away from their mouths, um, the, the uh, Philistines were actually known to eat bloody sacrifices, right? They would, have, they would eat the, um, uh, some raw flesh and actually have blood in their mouths as part of their worship. Of course, that's an abomination if you know about how the Old Testament 
a biblical law works. You've got to drain the blood out of the animals, right? You're not supposed to drink blood or, or any of those things. That's probably what's in view here. Uh, an alternative idea is he's going to take away the bloodthirstiness from their mouth. They're not going to want to conquer their enemies. That also works. Most scholars favor the first choice. But here's the striking thing. They are going to become a, a part of a remnant like a clan in Judah. You got to think about this from a Jewish standpoint. Uh, the Philistines have been your enemies for six, seven hundred years. And God is saying, oh, yeah, they're going to be like another tribe. You know, there's Ephraim, there's Judah, there's Benjamin. Oh, there's the Philistines. That's a strange sounding thing, isn't it? And so God says, you know what? I've done this before. In fact, this is my normal practice. He says, it shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron, right? One of the cities shall be like the Jebusites. Can anyone tell me anything about the Jebusites or name any famous Jebusites? Because that's the analogy. The, Phil the Philistines are going to be like the Jebusites. Who are the Jebusites? Just because you don't have your photos on doesn't mean you can't talk. Be bold. Who are the Jebusites? So for who the Jebusites are, aren't they the, um, the tribe that deceived, I think it was Joshua and Joshua's leadership by pretending to be from far away and made them um, agree to a covenant to make them their slaves, basically, to avoid getting killed um I, I don't think there's a relationship there um with the jebusites but rachel i wouldn't swear to that well who were they then was that the gibeonites yes oh okay and i don't know that the gibeonites are related to the jebusites because i'm not up on all those canaanite connections but if you think about the jebusites you should think about one specific group of people that are identified with one specific city They're the inhabitants of Jerusalem before David conquers it. Those are the Jebusites. Now, the reason why they're so significant is, is when David goes in and conquers the city, he kills a bunch of them, right? They had mocked David, like he'll never get in here because they had these great fortifications, these great walls. They were Israel's enemy. And David goes in and conquers them. And then they become part of the people of God. Uh, there are some really prominent Jebusites in the Bible. Zadok, the priest, is a Jebusite. Um, Nathan, the prophet to David, is a Jebusite. And Bathsheba is a Jebusite. And, and see, what God is saying here is, remember those Jebusites who were the enemies of the people of God? Uh, I conquered them, and then I grafted them to God's people. Even so, we have very quickly a prophet and a priest coming from the Jebusites. That's what I do. I take my enemies, not all of them, some of my enemies I crush, some of my enemies I convert and make part of my family. That's what he's saying about the Philistines. And beloved, the good news is God still does that. He's done that with us, right? He, he brings us into his family. That, that's a beautiful thing.
David, yeah, go ahead. Were, were the Jebusites um, a mixed group of people, or was it like for one particular town, or was that just a range of different towns of survivors that got together? Well, the most important thing about the Jebusites is they were in the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Undoubtedly, uh, some of them probably lived outside the city walls. That's how cities work. Um, the city walls of Jerusalem, um, before David conquers it, uh, would have been a relatively small town. Uh, but basically, the key thing about the Jebusites is they're the inhabitants of Jerusalem before David conquers it. Okay. Yeah. Because they, so, they were like the remnants of Canaan, basically, after the initial destruction. But the so they are Canaanites, but it would be a mistake to, set, to equate Jebusites with Canaanites. Okay. The Canaanites is this big sweeping term for all right. these different groups of people. This is like a clan of mm -hmm. the Canaanites. Yeah, so um, you want to think of it as a much smaller group of the Canaanites. Okay. Yeah. Some people, by the way, will try to relate Melchizedek to being a, Can uh, being a Jebusite because um, he is, after all, known as the um, king of Salem, right? That's what this mm -hmm. city used to be. I, I think that's a mistake. For one thing, you're talking about many years earlier with Abraham, so you can't really necessarily connect people. People migrate over time. That's just how it always works. And secondly, I personally think that Melchizedek is a uh, pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. But the important thing God is communicating is, I am going to take some of those people whom you see naturally as your enemies, and I'm going to make them your brothers and sisters. I'm going to make them members of my family. That's part of how God works. Then in verse 8, the Lord promises to make his people secure. Uh, look at verse 8 again with me. We haven't, we've been a little bit away from it here. The Lord says, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them. For now I see with my own eyes. Um, it'll probably make more sense for you to slightly tweak that translation. Instead of reading it as, now I see with my own eyes, I read it as, um, now I am watching over with my own eyes rather than seeing, right? Because the idea here isn't God suddenly notices. It's the idea of God is watching over with his watch care over his people. Any thoughts or questions on verses one through eight? Would someone read verses 9 to 13 to us? These will be very familiar. Verses 9 through 13. I can read that. Thank you, Peter. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double, for I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow, 
I will stir up your sons, O Sion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. Thank you, Peter. Um, this may be the most uh, well-known portion of Zechariah, just because it's quoted so extensively. I mean, almost everything in there, maybe everything in there, is in fact uh, quoted in the Gospels, and it's usually um, framed around the last week of our Lord's uh, life, so-called Holy Week. Um, However, I want to cast you to try to see this, not from the standpoint of the Jews crying out to Jesus, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, uh, as he comes into the city on a donkey. Um, I want you to try to see it from the standpoint of the people in Zechariah's day. They do not have a king. They do not have control of the promised land, right? It seems very, very remote to them. They have a governor, but the Lord is saying, I want you to rejoice, rejoice greatly because your king is coming to you, right? And this is the restoration of the Davidic monarchy. And of course, it's much more than the Davidic monarchy. It's the purpose of the Davidic monarchy. David points forward to the true coming Messiah. I think we ought to therefore look at it, uh, not in great detail because it's familiar, but just go through it verse by verse. I think that'll be helpful to us. Uh, first in verse nine, What's distinctive or surprising about the coming of the Messiah? Uh, admittedly, maybe not surprising to you because you know the story. But if you were thinking about this from the standpoint of being in the 4th, 5th century BC, what would be surprising about this? And actually, to some of the people in the 1st century, when Jesus comes, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. What's distinctive and surprising about that? He's on a donkey, not a horse. Yeah, I'm act absolutely. What, so what do you use horses for in Israel? War. War. That's the key thing, right? It's not like you ought to just ride around horses. They didn't use horses to, uh, for plows. They used horses for war. And God has just described uh, in verses one through seven that he's going to bring uh, a conqueror. He's going to defeat these cities in the promised land. And we have a shift from God bringing destruction, and, and, you know, and I'm going to say at the time of Alexander the Great, to the coming of the Messiah. And the Messiah comes humble, meek, lowly of heart, not to wage war against Jerusalem, but to come as the Prince of Peace. That's a very distinctive thing. Uh, I want to make just a small comment. I think probably uh, all of you know this, but just in case uh, this has slipped your mind a little bit, um, it's one of those things I don't like about um, like all translations. Um, these translations, when you come to things that say things like, oh, daughter of Zion, I think it's so easy to misunderstand that as Zion has a daughter. And actually what it is, is, oh, daughter Zion, right? Zion is the daughter, right? The people of God are the daughter. They're not the daughter of the city. Um, that's just a confusing uh, way of bringing over the Hebrew and English to put that word of in there in, in my judgment, right? So, oh, daughter of Jerusalem is Oh, daughter, God's addressing his people directly, and he's saying, oh, daughter Jerusalem, 
shout aloud, right? There's a great sense of excitement. Um, rather than the Messiah coming as a, a military um, conqueror, the Lord is promising, as we see in verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Now, it would have made good sense for them if God said, I will cut off the chariot from Damascus. I will cut off the chariot from Egypt. He actually says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. What is God saying about the coming of the Messiah, how it impacts the kingdom of God and the people of the kingdom of God? Yeah, it brings peace. Yeah, but what does it tell us about how our mission gets advanced in the world? Because we have conflict. We have peace and conflict in the world. We have both peace with God, but we as the people of God continue to have conflict. What is God saying that's going to be different with the, we'll call it the new covenant, but here just the coming of the Messiah? Power of God at work. There's the power of God at work. But you know, the power of God was at work when uh, Joshua um, killed all the people in Jericho. This seems different than that, doesn't it? If you go down to 13, it talks about him using Judah as his bow and Ephraim as his arrow. So the yeah. people of God become his instruments. Yeah, well, I want to talk about that separately. I, and Martha, that's good. And we're going to talk about that. But I think that deserves some, some detailed discussion of its own. I, I think the key thing to see here is, um, is you know, sometimes saying not with swords loud clashing, right, or stirring beat of drums. That's not how the kingdom of God advances in the world. Muslims advance Islam through the sword. Christianity is advanced through people going out and announcing the gospel, right, and often being martyred for it, frankly, in the early centuries and still around the world today. So God is going, with the coming of the Messiah, God is saying, I am not going to advance my kingdom by arming Israel and Israel going to military war against her enemies or the church going to military war against her enemies. Rather, I am going to bring peace to Israel and I am going to use them to speak peace to the nations. But that doesn't mean that Jesus is only going to rule in our hearts. The Messiah will rule from sea to sea from the river to the ends of the earth. God really does intend to conquer the earth by advancing the kingdom of God. But his method of conquering the earth is not that his people are gonna pick up the sword and go kill um, the infidels. You see how that fits together? And you'll see that, that that theme gets picked up in a number of places in the New Testament, right? The, the Prince of Peace establishes a people of peace who may have to endure great conflict, but who do not advance the kingdom of God by taking up weapons of war, right? Our weapons are spiritual weapons. The, the gospel and prayer and the Holy Spirit, they are not that we're going to have more tanks uh, than, let's say, the Muslims or the atheists do. Verses 11 and 12, um, I think can be described as a second exodus. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free 
from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. So the people of God have been in the Babylonian captivity, and God has delivered a remnant, and God is saying, I'm going to deliver my people. But there's a sense in which they haven't come out of the captivity yet. This has gotten a lot of attention in the last 30, 40 years among New Testament scholars to realize that uh, in many ways, the Babylonian captivity does not really fully come to an end until the Messiah comes. Because it's true, there's a remnant reestablished in the land, but they don't have a king. They don't have a messianic king, and, and they're not lifted up, right? That's part of the promise of the coming of the Messiah, that this, this people have been sent into Babylon for punishment. When they're restored, they're going to be lifted up, and they're going to become the head of the nations. You have all these beautiful images of that in the prophets, and that doesn't take place until Jesus comes, right? So in one sense, they're, they're, they're still in that position, attention, uh, very much like the people in Egypt were before they were being delivered. And so commonly, this has come, become um, known as uh, return from exile or a second exodus. And second exodus motifs are very common, particularly uh, in the prophet Isaiah. You'll see that if, if you just think that and then you read through Isaiah. There's a lot of second exodus sorts of imagery. Um, the people of God have the Lord's promise that the Messiah will do this very thing of restoring the people from exile and setting the prisoners free. In fact, that uh, language of setting the prisoners free, although it's quoted from Isaiah, um, is specifically applied to Jesus in the New Testament. He is the one that comes and sets the prisoners free. Uh, I think it's interesting, actually, too, they're called prisoners of hope. Any ideas why they'd be called prisoners of hope? I'll give you an analogy. It's interesting that Paul, writing from prison, describes himself as a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's a way of reframing what's going on. And in this case, in one sense, they're still trapped in this not yet delivered state, right? They're living with an already and not yet. They, they've come back to Jerusalem, but they haven't been restored as the people of God. And they won't be until the future when the Messiah comes. But instead of seeing themselves fundamentally in that situation because of the Persians and then because of the Greeks, they realize that they're in that position because of God, God who has given them a certain hope because he has told them, he has promised them, as he has promised us, that the Messiah will come and deliver them completely. Right? So I think that's how that weaves together, very much the way that Paul will talk about being a prisoner of Christ. Um, they're be being described as prisoners of hope in the coming Christ. At least that's how I take it. Then verse 13 introduces a rather abrupt turn. Um, as Lessing points out, instead of peace, disarmament, um, and captives going free, the prophet rein reintroduces weapons in warfare. So this is what Martha pointed to. For I have bent Judah as my bow. I have made Ephraim its arrow. 
I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So my question for you is, does anyone have any idea what's going on? We've got the Messiah. He comes as Prince of Peace. Uh, if you follow my interpretation, he's, he's saying, I'm going to take away the war horse. The people in Israel, we're not going to advance the kingdom of God by military might. And then we come to verse 13. All of a sudden, we're talking about weapons again. What's going on? We have a little intro, interlude of war or... couple of you are kind of going back and forth going should i say something should i say something yes you should say something <laughs> so what comes to my mind is jesus sending out the uh, 70 i think it is so the idea that he's sending us today out into the world to be ambassadors for him yeah peter i think that's right and actually i think the key thing to recognize about this warlike imagery is the lord is not giving weapons to judah He's using Judah as his weapon, right? That is, God is not saying with the coming of Messiah, because he's bringing peace, my people are all going to be passive. Rather, I'm going to send them out, and they are, in fact, going to advance. The kingdom of God is going to advance and conquer the enemies of the kingdom. They're not going to conquer by killing them. They're going to conquer by, uh, by proclaiming the gospel and, you know, through prayer. And I think that fits very well together. In fact, there's a really striking image in um, Romans chapter 16, verse 20, where Paul tells the Romans that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, right? You, you take both things together, the God of peace, but he's advancing to crush the kingdom of Satan, and he's going to use God's people, in this case, the, at least in the direct sense, the Romans he's writing to, but I think the church in general, He's going to use the church to conquer the kingdom of darkness. I think that's what's simply what's going on here. There, there's a declaration of God in Zechariah that he's going to use his people to advance his kingdom. But I think the key thing is to see that the people are the weapons in God's hand, along with the word that he's sending out. And he's not arming us so that we fight with the weapons of this world. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, you need to be, or imagine what the Apostle Paul thought, you know, obviously knowing this passage, yeah. you know, and going to Greece with the gospel. Um, so the gospel. He's going to war. He's advancing against enemies and he's bold in doing so. And he talks about um, the, the weapons that the Lord has given us are powerful for tearing down strongholds, Right. Uh, uh, so it's important for us to remember the church is not, um, you think of that image, um, the gates of hell will not withstand the church. Um, I think people often think that it's the gates of the church that won't withstand the, on, let me put it backwards, the gates of the church will withstand the onslaught of hell, right? We will not be overcome. That is not the image. The image is the other way around. The kingdom of darkness will not overcome Christ expanding his kingdom by using the church to do it. There's some other nuances around the gates of hell with Jonah that uh, we don't need to get into, but I also think it includes the idea of the resurrection. Uh, that is, the, gate, the gates of hell would be Hades. You die, you're in Hades, but 
that's not the end for believers. God's going to triumph over Satan, sin, and death, right, by raising us from the dead. Um, any other insights or thoughts uh, about this passage before we look at verses 14 through 17 together? It's obviously quite famous to us. And beautiful. It's a beautiful passage. Would someone like to read verses 14 through 17? I can do that. Thank you, Jason. Then the Lord will appear over them, and his arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God will sound the trumpet and will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them, and they shall devour and tread down the sling stones, and they shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine and be full like a bowl, drenched like the corners of the altar. On that day, the Lord their God will save them as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. For how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine, the young women. Thank you, Jason. Um, I don't think we have to say very much about these verses. In many ways, they're just really straightforward. They're beautiful. They're encouraging. Uh, and actually often encouragement from the Lord is clear so that we all get it. Uh, there's an intertwining here of the Lord saving and delivering his people and also giving uh, abundant blessings to his people that are tied with the coming of the Messiah. Uh, to paraphrase um, our read lesson, in the face of the Persian and Greek military might of his day, right? Those are the, those are the superpowers. Zechariah is declaring that the Lord Almighty is really the lone superpower, right? No one can stand against the Lord. That, that's the key point. And the Lord is going to fight on behalf of his people, and he is going to conquer on their behalf as well. Uh, this results in celebration and human flourishing. There is joy. We, we often think of the, the great joy that we will experience on the other side of Christ's second coming, and that's true. But there is an abundance of joy in the new covenant community of the people of God as well. As Zechariah says in verse 17, for how great is his goodness and how great his beauty. Grain shall make the young men flourish and new wine the young women. And I'd like to give John McKay um, the last word here, unless, of course, you have questions on this. I think John McKay puts it very nicely. He writes, despite their present dejection, the people are drawn forward to consider all that will be provided for them. It is not just that the Messiah will certainly come, but that his coming and their future are bound together. I love that phrase. His coming and their future are bound together. And beloved, that's still true of us. His first coming and our future is bound together, but his second coming and our future are bound together as well. Any thoughts at all that you'd like to add here at the end or questions on these last verses? <laughs>